So June 6, 1944, we call it D-Day, or we call it Operation Overlord. It is a significant thing because it was that day the beaches of Normandy, England, or Normandy, France, where basically the Allied forces took Normandy Beach. And it was, a, it was a huge, huge battle because it was significant in a sense that it was the battle that if it was lost, the world would look very different probably than it does today. It was a chain, it was one of the most important modern battles ever fought. And so uh, that day, uh, basically, Normandy, the beach, and the effort to defeat the German army won the battle that day and pushed back Germany. Now, the victory wasn't that day. In fact, it wasn't until V-Day, and on V-Day, which was May 8, 1945, that's almost a year later, almost a year later, that Germany finally, finally surrendered. So D-Day, and then a year later, V-Day was the, the... So you had this in-between time where Germany was still fighting. They were still pillaging. They were still destroying. They were still killing people. Moving back, further backing up, backing up, backing up. But it didn't come until V-Day. It didn't come till V-Day that Germany surrendered. They dropped their, their arms and they surrendered. Now, that in-between time is pretty significant because many people knew that on D-Day that the war was pretty much won, but it wasn't over. That victory gave the Allied forces the victory, but it wasn't over yet. It wasn't until V-Day that Germany laid down their arms and surrendered. So there was a year of unrest, pillaging, killing, just all sorts of just terrible things were going on. The reason I bring that up is because Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And when Jesus is on earth, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm the king, and my kingdom is happening now. Right? And then he gets crucified, and then he gets buried, and then he rises from the dead three days later. He appears to many, many witnesses. He ascends to heaven, and we go, all right, people are still dying. Life's not easy. Still evil in the world. What's going on? And the answer is, when you be, read the book of Revelation, if you want to put, put the context in, Jesus comes, and, and on the cross, it's D-Day. He takes the beach. Genesis 3.15, where he says, he's going to give you, the, he's going to give you a, a wound, but you're going to give a death blow. And the enemy was defeated on, at the cross over 2,000 years ago, but... We're not in V-Day yet. There's still pillaging. There's still death. There's still destruction. There's still sin. There's still evil in the world. Then we read the book of Revelation, don't we? Read the book of Revelation. What happens in Revelation? Total, total surrender. But we're not there yet. 
We're in that one-year period where the kingdom is already, but it's not yet. That's where we're at. So Jesus comes and he talks about what do you do in that period of time between D-Day and V-Day? What do you do between that time where I come my first time to bring the victory and I come the second time for all-out surrender? What do you do? How do you behave? That's what we want to look at this weekend. Because Jesus is going to talk about a kingdom that's already but not yet. It's already manifesting itself, but it's not yet. So he's going to tell a couple of parables and stories. And he's going to say the kingdom of heaven is like... And he's going to teach kingdom principles. What we're going to find about these kingdom principles is they're counterintuitive. They go against the grain. They aren't things that we would normally think, oh, I get it. In fact, many of his his disciples and followers didn't get it. And he had to explain it to them. So let's look at a couple of those, uh, actually four of those kingdom principles. The first one is this. And we're in Mark chapter 4, verse 21. Mark 4, 21. The first kingdom principle that really is counterintuitive is this. What is hidden will one day be revealed. What is hidden will one day be revealed. Notice what he says in verse 21. He said to them, Do you bring a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed is meant to be brought to the, out in the open. If anyone has ears, let them hear. So that's a couple of things that Jesus does. He, he uses this phrase, if anyone has ears, let them hear. And what he's doing here is he's teaching a kingdom principle, which is counterintuitive. So as we look at the teaching, this is similar to what Matthew said. And let me just read Matthew's verses so you can see that. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's a great life verse. Let people see your good deeds and not glorify you, but your Father in heaven. A great verse. But what what Mark or what G or Matthew is doing is he's sharing the light as a way that we share the gospel through our lives. Okay, that our lives are not just our words, but our deeds show the light of the gospel. Right, but Mark is using it a little different. I think he's saying some of what Matthew's saying, but he's saying something a little different. He is saying that the hidden things are going to be made known. In other words, what he's saying is, if you have things that you're hiding, that you think no one is ever going to find out about, you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. Your bad behavior will not continue to be hidden. So check your behavior. Listen, aren't we seeing that? Don't you just read the newspaper on a daily basis and you see, oh, this person was doing this all this time and now it's become revealed. And you read, oh, this person did this and now we find out about it. Oh, this person, we thought they were good. But, and so we have people who are leading different lives. They have leading a public life and they're leading a private life. And they think that this hidden private life is never going to be brought forth. And Jesus says the kingdom is is one of the things you have to learn about the kingdom is that you cannot hide. 
one day all things are going to be revealed. There's a couple of rules you ought to live by. One is this. It's the mom rule. Mom is always watching. (laughs) Mom is always watching. Live your life like mom is always watching because mom, God, is always watching. He sees everything. Worse than that, he knows your motives. He knows your heart. He knows everything. Mom is always watching. Here's the second one. So these are the filters when you say, should I or shouldn't I? Well, filter number one, mom's watching. Live your life as though mom is watching you. Secondly, live your life as though if this was on the front page of the paper, how would I feel? If this was on the front page of the paper and everybody in town read it, how would I feel about that if it was revealed? See, this is a call, what Jesus is saying is, this is a call to be transparent. That you shouldn't have a public face and you shouldn't have a private face. That we be, when we become Christians, we become part of Christian community. And Christian community requires us to become transparent with one another. One of the tenets of AA and Celebrate Recovery is that you have to be honest about your hurts and your hang-ups. You can walk in, and you can try to hide, and you can try to make excuses, but in a sense, you have to choose between privacy, which our world loves privacy, but you have to choose between privacy and health. If you're going to get healthy, you're going to have to be transparent. You're going to have to tell others. You're going to have to let others in. I think that's why the Scripture calls us to confess our sins one to another. It doesn't mean you walk up to a complete stranger and you start sharing all the garbage in your life, but it does mean that when you have relationships and they grow closer and closer and closer, you begin to share what's going on. You become transparent. That God brings people into your lives where you can be transparent with them, where they can know the garbage in your life and they can help you deal with it. That's why we want people to be part of life groups. We're hoping that if you get in a life group, there's one, maybe two people in that life group that you say, I can have this kind of transparent relationship with this person. We can build a a relationship of trust where we can share. This is a, there's no secrets in the kingdom of God. All things will be revealed. We're called to be real, vulnerable, and transparent. Uh, in, In the gospel of John chapter three, it says this, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What John, what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of John is this. If you belong to me, You shouldn't be living in the darkness. You should be coming into the light. You should be becoming more transparent. You have to to expose yourself, your sin. You have to confess your sin to one another. You have to acknowledge it. Stop making excuses for it. So my question here is this. Is there something in your life that you're trying to hide that if it were on the front page of the paper tomorrow... It wouldn't look good. What are you going to do about that? 
Will you ask God to help you to come clean? Will you come to people that care about you and begin to share and, and allow them to help you? If you want healing, you, you can't have healing in privacy. The kingdom of God becoming into the light means that you become transparent. You begin to share your hurts and your hang-ups and your sins. So that's counterintuitive because our world says, no, privacy, my privacy is primary. Which, what I find it's interesting is that privacy now has been lost by people and people are jumping on people. You kept that secret. You're a terrible person. It's better to think about what you're going to do and say, is mom watching and do I want this on the front page of the paper? Secondly, here's a second counterintuitive principle. Fulfillment comes to us as we give our lives away, or as we give our life away. Notice what it says in verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear, he says, he continued. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And even more, whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away. We, we pray this. You know, you may have, you, your whole life, you may have prayed the Lord's Prayer. Do you know that what Jesus said here is in the Lord's Prayer? He says, forgive us as we forgive others. What are you saying there? In the way that I forgive others, that's how I want to be forgiven by you. Right? Isn't that what we're praying? We don't mean it. Right? We don't really mean it. We say it almost robotically, but that's essentially what he's saying. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured with you. In other words, he's saying, as you forgive, I'll forgive you in that level. Ooh, no, no, don't use me. <laughs> so this is counterintuitive. Like, for instance, how do you grow rich relationships? How do you grow rich relationships? Here's what the world says. Here's what our pop culture says. Look for the coolest, the hippest, the nicest people and hang out with them so that you can have your needs met. You do this and you will not have true healthy friendships. You follow this path, find the coolest, hippest, greatest people, and just hang with them, and you, you, the world says, and you will, have, you will not have friendships. You will lack true friendships. But here's what Jesus says. If you move into relationships not to have your needs met, but to meet the needs of others, what you'll find are rich relationships. You'll become relationally rich by serving others. Jesus is saying something pr really profound. He's saying that as you give away your life, you find your life. If you hold on to your life, you're going to lose your life. It's very counterintuitive. It's very opposite. And this is the upside-down principle of his kingdom, that only as you give your life away do you find life. Only uh, the, the way to reign is to submit. The way to find yourself is to lose yourself. The way to freedom is to put yourself under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That sounds all very opposite, and that's the way the kingdom works. How about money? Many are striving to get rich, but riches can distract you. Riches can can rot you. The pursuit of riches, by the way, the, the Bible never condemns money. It, 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 it condemns 
the pursuit, the, the life driven by money, the love of money, the pursuit of money, the desire, the need, the, the have to have money. And, and why? Because it rots your soul. So to prevent this, Jesus tells us to give our riches away to help the poor. And by doing this, we are released from the power of money over us. Some people would say, and some of you would say, maybe many of you would say, when I was hand to mouth, I was more dependent on God than ever before. And God came through in miraculous ways that I can't even begin to describe to you. But now that I have more, I find that I don't really rely upon God. I don't really need Him. This is the absolute reverse of how the world uh, regards money. Power, recognition, status, comfort, even happiness. The world says, if you want to be happy, try to be happy. Look out for number one. If you want wealth, hold on to it. But Jesus says, no, that's absolutely wrong. It's the opposite way. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says, no, seek my kingdom, and I'll give you everything you need. There's a difference between what we want and what we need, right? Don't we as parents help our kids try to understand or at least we're hopefully we're trying to say you don't really need that. I know you are you don't I know you want that, but you don't really need it. So here's the question: Are you seeking happiness, recognition, friendships, money, status, or freedom? What principle are you following? Are you following the pop culture, the pop culture trend that says if you want a friendship, hang out with the cool people. If you want things, go after them. If you want money, pursue money. Pursue wealth. Pursue this. And what Jesus says, no, if you want freedom, put yourself under my lordship. If you want friendships, start to serve others. It's totally the opposite. Here's the third principle of the kingdom. My hand may be on the wheel, but God is the driving force. My hand may be on the wheel, But God is a driving force. Notice what he says in verse 26. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, or the seed sprouts and grows. Though he does not know how, all all by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. In other words, what he's saying here is very, very interesting. What he's saying here is the sower goes out and he just sows the seeds. He's not really responsible for the growth of the seeds. Now, we know that a good gardener or a good farmer will basically till the soil, prepare the soil. He'll plant the seeds in good soil. He'll uh, water the, the seed. He'll weed the field because that needs to be done. So he does all those things. But here's the point that, the, 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 that uh, Jesus is making here. He is saying, God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who takes that seed that dies and causes it to grow. God is the one who gives the increase. And, you know, in in the New Testament, we're told some plant or some prepare the soil, some plant the seed, some water the seed, but it's God who gives the increase. 
The point is, God is sovereign over his church. Church is not a building, it's people. God is sovereign over his church. He has a plan for his church. And you know what? One of the lessons that I learned uh, a while ago as a pastor is I realized that no church is a pastor's church. This is not my church. This is his church. And he's sovereign over that. He's sovereign over your lives and over my life. And I don't go to bed and lay awake at night and say, oh, no, what are we going to do? Because I know God is going to take care of his church. The church belongs to him. He is in control. That's why I'm optimistic. I, I, I see the world and I see the play, way where it's going. And I go, oh, no. But I'm optimistic. Why? Because I believe God is sovereign. And God has made some promises. In fact, he made a promise to to. To Peter, in, uh, he says this. You can write this verse down, Matthew 16. He says, Blessed are you, Simon, Peter, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I give you the keys of the kingdom, but whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Jesus was assuring Peter and the rest of us that his church is not going to die it's never going to lose the batter, the victory is already won we know how it ends in the end because we can just open the book of revelation and we see how it all ends Jesus I'm going to tell you how the game ends Jesus was assuring Peter that he was in control of the church the church belongs to him we take comfort in knowing that nothing happens in our lives by accident, that he has a plan, even for the bad days that you may have had this week. Sometimes we go through those bad times, those bad days, we get the bad news, and we go, what is going on? Where is God? As though God is just like absent, and he didn't know it was going to happen, and he wasn't aware of it, he was asleep at the wheel, whatever it is. No, 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 no. You need to know that he's in control when you have one of those bad days. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 28, we know that all, in, in all things, God, all things, in, in all things, in all bad days, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That God has a plan, that God is not asleep at the wheel. He is moving behind the scenes, even when it doesn't seem like anything's happening. Now, I don't know where you're at this weekend, whether you're listening online at the Rosha campus or where even here right now. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I want you to, maybe this is the one thing you hear this weekend that'll make sense to you, that God, will, through his spirit, will bring to your heart. That whatever is happening in your life isn't an accident. That God hasn't like, oh man, should have paid attention over there. That's kind of coming apart. No. My hands may be on the wheel, but God is driving. God is the driving force. God has a plan, and it will not be thwarted. That's the point that he's making to Peter. The gates of hell will not prevail. There's no power that will stop it. And it's not just for his church. It's for us. We are the church. It's for your life and my life. So what is happening in your life right now that maybe you 
haven't stepped back and gotten that heavenly, God is sovereign perspective. That it's, it may have been a surprise to you. It may be a shock to you. It may be rocking you. But God isn't rocked by it. And God isn't worried about it. And God has a plan for it. And that's why Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. If I've taken care of you up to this point, if I take care of the birds in the field and, and the fields, won't I take care of you? And the answer is yes. Yes, I will. Here's the fourth principle. God uses crooked, stri- crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Notice what he says in verse 30. Again, he said, what shall that we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Now, some people uh, who are critical of the Bible say, oh, the mustard seed's not the smallest seed. Yeah, you know, we t- what we tend to do is we don't understand the New Testament times and, and how people, we, use, we do this all the time. Uh, 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 and I just did it this, this, when I began the sermon. I, maybe I mentioned this. Uh, around 12,000 uh, Allied troops were lost in D-Day. I didn't tell you how many because I don't know how many. I mean, somebody somewhere has an exact count. I don't. But you're not going to call me on that and say, well, that's incorrect information. Jesus is making a point here, and the point here is a very little thing does a very big thing. That's all that he's doing here. And some people, you know, want to take a, some sort of unreal standard on this. The mustard seed was a very little seed. It was insignificant. It was overlooked. Um, but when, the, when it was planted, when it was energized, it grew and it grew and it grew. And it became, it became tree-like to the point that birds could nest on it. That's the point. The, 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 here's, here's what Jesus is saying. The people of the Bible, you read some of these Old Testament saints. I use the word saints in quotes because sometimes you look at them and go, yikes, man. I mean, even David, I mean, really, right? You look at the life of David and you say, it's hard to sanitize his life. I mean, he was a man after God. If we didn't have that phrase, he was a man after God's own heart. We would all have a very different view of David, wouldn't we? But he was an imperfect person. He was a crooked stick. We read about these people in the Bible. Look at the 12 disciples. They're illustrations that God uses imperfect people to carry out his perfect plan. That God chooses flawed people, crooked sticks. That God loves using marginalized, overlooked, weak and flawed people to carry out his perfect will. Because here's what we think, I think. We think God is looking for this perfect person to do his will. But he's not. In fact, it's interesting what he does to Paul. What does he do with Paul? Paul is persecuting the church. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he has this Jesus moment 
where Jesus basically says, why are you persecuting me? And he comes to Christ. He comes to Jesus. He has that Jesus moment. He, he goes blind. And then he becomes the, one of the greatest church planters ever. Maybe the greatest church planter ever. I mean, he knows Judaism because he was a Pharisee. He, he was opposed, so he has an incredible testimony. His testimony is, I used to kill people. I used to have people dragged and killed. I stood there when Stephen was stoned to death. But now I'm planting churches. So what happens to Paul? God gives him a thorn in the flesh. <laughs> and he says, Paul, you're too straight I'm going to make you a little more crooked. I'm going to throw a little bit of conflict in your life. You're, you're going to have this thorn in the... And it says, Paul says in his own words, I asked God three times, take it away, please. Take it away, take it away. And what does Jesus say? No, my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul came out and says, when I am weak, when I'm crooked, when I'm broken, then I am strong. Why? Because God has to make up for it. He gets the glory. Some people could have said, Paul, of course. Look at Paul. Look at the strength of Paul. And God says, no. I'm going to make Paul into this person where you're going to look at him and you're going to go, Paul? God used Paul? So God isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for broken imperfect, crooked stick people. That's who he's looking for. And, and, and he says this, Paul essentially says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, this is 1 Corinthians, you know, I'll give you the reference, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. He says, brothers and si sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were influential not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that we may boast before him. In other words, what Paul is saying is God loves using crooked sticks to draw straight lines. I'm speaking to an audience of crooked sticks. And I'm telling you, the day that you say that God doesn't want to use you or can't use you is the day where you do not understand the principle of the kingdom of God where he, Jesus says, I use crooked sticks. Our role is to believe that God wants to and God can use us. You may doubt yourself, but God doesn't. <laughs> Do we really believe that God wants to use us? See, he's not looking for talent, ability, experience, and knowledge. He's looking for faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The point is God is glorified when we obediently trust him enough to do what he says.
There's four principles. They're very counterintuitive. They go against the pop culture of our world. They, they're not things that we would say, oh, yeah. Now, when we hear them, we go, okay, that makes sense, but it still seems backwards. And essentially what Jesus is saying is, here's what's going to happen. There's going to become a day on the cross where we're going to have D-Day. There's going to be a day where the battle is going to be turned forever, for eternity. But there's going to be an in-between time, and so far it's lasted 2,000 plus years. But, you know, the nice thing is that Jesus gives us, tells us about the V-Day, Victory Day in the book of Revelation. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Satan, the enemy, will be cast into the lake of fire forever. That there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more dying. That there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But in the in-between time, there's still death, destruction, evil, sin, darkness. And what Jesus is saying to us is, hang in there, hang on. I've got a plan. It'll work out. We know the final score. So I don't know what you'll take this weekend. But I hope the Spirit of God would take, give one, take one of these principles and you'll say, this is the one that God wants to work on in my heart. Maybe two, I don't know. His principles... They're kingdom principles. They're for life here and now. They're very different than what you're hearing in the world. May God plant the seed in your heart this weekend. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the word of God and bring it directly into our hearts where it needs to be planted. I pray that if there's hard ground, that it would be broken up. I pray that if there is a, a seeds that need to be watered, that they would be watered. I pray that if there is, is a crop or a, a growth that is being twisted by thorns, that it would be released. I pray, Father, that we would be good soil for the Word of God. And I pray that you would speak to our hearts in some way that it would change us, our thoughts and our behavior for your glory. I pray that, Father, if there's someone here this weekend who has never trusted Jesus, they'd never crossed that line of faith, they would understand that they're a sinner under the condemnation of God, under the wrath of God, and that unless they turn and repent and call upon Jesus, they're doomed. And they may want to pray a prayer like this. Dear Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner I'm lost, and you came to save me. That I can't save myself, that, that no church membership or trying to be good is, will ever suffice. That they are merely filthy rags in your presence. And I ask you to come into my life. You gave your life to me, and now I give my life to you. don't know what it means, but I ask you to come into my life to save me from my sin to give me new life. Through your death, I will live. Through your sacrifice, I will find forgiveness.
And I pray this in Jesus' name. And I pray, Father, if somebody prayed a prayer like that, they would let somebody know that they crossed that line of faith. Because your word tells us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And maybe they just need to come to a place where they realize they can't save themselves and they need to call on the Lord. For the rest of us, Father, who have maybe prayed a prayer like that or recently or maybe a long time ago, we still have room to grow. Help us to grow in the way you desire us to grow. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.